With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Emma Bledsoe. Emma Bledsoe, or M, as we always call her, whose picture appears in the book, was a faithful slave that belonged to my father. She was the nurse or personal attendant of my sister, Mrs. Woodford. When the slaves, after their emancipation, began to assume surnames, her father, quote-unquote Jim, assumed the name Roy and was thereafter known as Jim Roy. He was a light copper-colored man, polite, intelligent, frugal, self-respecting, industrious, and of good principles. After his freedom, he purchased a few acres off a corner of my father's farm and built or improved a little house on it until he had a neat and comfortable home where he lived until he died. He continued to labor for my father many years, and few indeed were the ungracious words that ever passed between him and my father or any member of the family. His wife, M's mother, was Aunt Kitty, as we children called her. She was about the color of her husband, and they seemed to be well-mated. Jim's father was, quote-unquote, Uncle Patrick, the blacksmith, an intelligent, good workman of lighter complexion than Jim, whose wife was, quote-unquote, Aunt Sookie, a very black woman. Kitty's mother was, quote-unquote, Aunt Emma, who belonged to Uncle Roger Jones. She was a sister of Uncle Patrick and about his color, so that Jim and his wife were cousins. They all came into the family through Grandma, who was a Fauntleroy, hence probably the name Jim, quote-unquote, Roy. Grandma used to tell the children how Uncle Patrick, as a little boy, would run ahead of the wagons as they journeyed from Virginia to Kentucky and kick up his heels and cut all manner of shines, which afforded no little amusement on their arduous and monotonous journey. A sister of Jim Roy was Aunt Jenny, quote-unquote, Grandma's cook, and no French chef could have held a place in that family while Aunt Jenny was around. There were many intelligent and faithful servants that belonged to the family, for my grandfather was a large slaveholder in his own right between whom and the family there existed the kindliest relations of mutual respect and esteem. There was, quote-unquote, Uncle Joe Banks, a Baptist preacher, very popular with his race and much in demand, both to preach and to officiate at their marriages. 
Their marriage ceremony, which I have witnessed, was like that of the whites. It was respected by the whites and every opportunity given them to be faithful to their marriage vows. On such occasions, the mistress of the bride would generally have a quantity of cakes and nice things cooked and provide an inviting and bountiful wedding supper. When I was a little girl, I used to tease Uncle Joe into talking about Judgment Day and then get so frightened at his vivid and awful description of it that I was afraid to go to sleep at night for fear it would come before morning. True as our our poor old neighbor, Colonel Green, told his wife, who was haunted by the same fear, I couldn't make out how Judgment Day could come in the night. Still, it looked like taking chances. Neither Uncle Joe nor Uncle Patrick would eat mutton, although M fooled them sometimes by telling them it was beef, without any ill effect except to her. But they wanted bacon. And when between hog killing times, the bacon would give out and the rest of us were feasting on the nicest bluegrass-fatted lamb, my father would stop a hand from his work and ransack the neighborhood for bacon for Uncle Joe and Uncle Patrick. Then there was, quote-unquote, Uncle John, Grandma's foreman, who kept order on the farm and saw that the other servants did their work, a tall, dark-skinned Negro who brooked no shirking of work by any was straight as an Indian chief and just as fearless. There was, quote-unquote, Uncle Dennis, the coachman, who died not many years ago, and who to the day of his death always lifted his hat with a servant master, very broad A's. Whenever he met me, due to an inveterate sense of respect and politeness from which the president's proclamation could never quite emancipate him, and which greatly scandalized some of the younger members of his race, When Clayton made his ascent in a balloon at Lexington in 1835, he landed in the top of an apple tree in my grandfather's orchard, in close proximity to the Negro quarters. The Negroes were greatly frightened, and some of them fell on their knees and began to pray vociferously. They thought it was a supernatural visitation. In landing, he broke his leg and remained at my grandfather's several days until he could be removed. From Aunt Emma, quote-unquote, who was very old at the time, but had a good memory. I obtained much of my earliest information of the Fauntleroy family. Indeed, it is possible that my genealogical interest had its beginning in occasional hints thrown out by different Negroes in the family, for many of the slaves were in sentiment at least downright aristocrats and were jealous of the honor and social position of their master's family. They seemed to think it reflected credit on them, and in a measure determined their social position and their right to pretensions among others of their race. And in a measure, this was true, for the slaves imitated the manners of their master and partially imbibed his principles and even some of his romantic sense of human honor and chivalry. But to return to the subject proper of my sketch, I have just returned from a visit to my sister, Mrs. Whitford, in Clark County, where I found M helping to do a day's washing and ironing. She had slipped off from her home two miles distant, leaving her company, and had come to help. In time of stress, her neighbor, her former mistress, and always her friend. True, she was paid for her work, but the work or the pay is not the point. It was neither the love of money nor the need of it that impelled her to leave her home at this inconvenient season. It was her old-time spirit of helpfulness 
and of loyalty to her people, whom she regards as still her people and her friends in a way that no other people are. Indeed, M's loyalty to her friends carried her so far in our civil war that she became an out-and-out rebel. Nobody enjoyed more than M the skedaddle of the stinking Yankees, as she called them, from Richmond when they met General Smith's army and passed pell-mell along the road by our front gate, gunless, and many of them coatless and hatless on their way to Lexington. This was good enough, but when M heard that John Morgan was coming into Kentucky on one of his periodical raids, she simply had to hold herself down to stay on the earth. There is no doubt but that M was a rebel of the very worst type. After the war, she married a man named Bledsoe, and they have several grown children. One of them was a non-commissioned officer in the 10th Cavalry, USA, and helped to redeem the day at San Juan Hill. Slaves were not required to work when they grew old and feeble. Aunt Kitty, who was a middle-aged woman but thought her health was delicate, and Aunt Sookie, who was growing quite old, lived for years in a good two-story house of four rooms and a kitchen, about a mile from the family residence on my father's farm, which they and their husbands had to themselves and were furnished with fuel, food, and clothing. Yet they did little or nothing. Aunt Sookie literally nothing, while Aunt Kitty worked only when she felt like it and then did only light sewing and occasionally spun some yarn. That the slaves were not overworked is evident from the fact that it required from six to a dozen slaves to do the work on a farm that is now done by two or three hired helps. They were seldom sold as to separate them from their families. It was the rarest occurrence that a mother was separated from her young children or a husband from his wife. They were divided out, swapped around, and things adjusted so that there were seldom any cruel separations. It was very usual to consult Negroes as to their preference of masters when it was proposed either to sell or to hire them out, and many a master has refused to part with a servant at great sacrifice to himself because of the servant's opposition. They were usually hired for the year, and if their employer neglected or mistreated them, they were sure to report to their owner when they came home at Christmas. And if their complaint seemed just, they were not hired again to the same man. I am aware that my experience was of slavery as it existed under the most favorable conditions. Undoubtedly, there were instances of cruelty to slaves a frequent recurrence in the broad area embraced by slavery. So there are instances of cruelty to wives and children and white employees of frequent and constant recurrence now and at all times. I am not defending slavery, but drawing from memory a true picture of slavery as it existed in the community in which I lived. Measured by any standard of abstract, right slavery was wrong. So is the forcible occupation of the Philippines. The difference is one of degree only. Slaves were not cringing or servile in their deportment, but natural and easy grace in their master's presence. Some of them were courtly and exceedingly gracious of manner, were good diplomats in their own way, were shrewd to detect and prompt to play upon the foibles and petty vanities of human nature. True, they were not taught out of books as a rule and were not bothered with catechism but no people who are capable of progress could sustain for generations such intimate contact with a people as superior as their masters and mistresses were and not become more or less educated. 
It depends, however, on what one understands by education. If education consists in ability to obtain a first-class certificate to teach a district school, I fear that a large percent of our most refined and cultivated people should be classed as illiterate. But if real education means enlightened character building and the best method be by moral precept and example, the Negro enjoyed educational advantages not inferior to that enjoyed by any people in the history of civilization, whose condition in their native state was anything approaching his condition. The question is, could he have been brought to such a state of improvement by any process that did not include the wholesome discipline of enforced industry and self-restraint accompanied by such intimate and constant contact with a superior race as slavery alone could make possible to him? The only ones benefited by their enslavement were the Negroes themselves, and I am confident that their owners were the ones most benefited by their emancipation. To make clear, the first proposition, one need only reflect on what would have been their condition at the time of their freedom if their ancestors had been left in Africa. It was the Negroes' only chance to become a citizen of the United States. Slavery was never a profitable institution unless in the extreme South where the slaves were worked in cotton fields under overseers. It required a large part of all the master could make on his farm or plantation to feed, clothe, and care for them. When they were brought to the colonies, they were too ignorant and debased to be of much value. And when they became educated along lines of industry and usefulness, they became too numerous for the service to which they were adapted. They became a burden on the planter to which he had become attached by custom and from which he could not rid himself. He could have sold them south, as many of the slaveholders in the northern colonies had done when slavery proved to be unprofitable in the north, but no prospect of financial advantage could, I imagine, have induced my family to sell one of these servants to be worked in the cotton fields of the south. They could have done it. They knew it would be exceedingly profitable to do it. But the fact remains to their everlasting credit that they did not do it. They could have freed them, and by that act at least entitled themselves to the merit of sacrificing their own and not their neighbor's property. But this would have been a distinct injury to their neighbors, for a free Negro in a slaveholding community was a nuisance as tending to demoralize and spread discontent among neighboring slaves. And a settlement of free Negroes was scarcely to be tolerated under any circumstances. Some of them purchased lands for their slaves in free states and colonized them. Councilor Carter of Virginia did this and manumitted a large number of slaves, but the result was not encouraging. Their lands soon went to wreck, and, or they were cheated out of them by designing white neighbors, and the former slaves became a charge on the community. What was the master to do with them? They had been in his family for generations. He had inherited them from his ancestors. They were looked upon as part of the family establishment, were identified with his traditions, and rich in his reminiscence. He had played with them in his infancy, had grown up with them to manhood, had championed their cause and fought their battle. Their very dependence upon him was a mute but powerful appeal to all that was noble and generous in his nature. And although they loved their leisure, and were none too attentive to their work. They were good-natured, cheery, and sunny in their temperament, and their mere presence helped to relieve the monotony of plantation life. And this was the story of the Jones family of Virginia. I just read pages 
in the appendix in a chapter called Emma Bledsoe. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.